You've been listening to the weekly sermon from the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, a spirit-filled family that makes disciples and plants churches among neighbors and nations through declaration and demonstration. For more information and service times, check out our website at www.thevinemadison.org. All right, Vine family, if you find your seats. I just wanted to give a quick word of introduction to Casey. Um, I think we realize Madison is a lot of people uh, constantly moving to town. We have a lot of newer folks here. Um, and uh, stealing a little bit of Casey's thunder, it's been five years since he was really a part of this church here. I know, stealing your stories for later. But um, Casey moved back to Madison, kind of from the area originally, but through really God's providence, got connected with the Hoberts, and together the Johnsons and the Hoberts planted Redeemer City Church in Fitchburg, which is our first church plant as the vine. And so um, it's really exciting for us to have Casey back here. He's uh, always busy at Redeemer with leadership development and um, vision and community outreach things, preaching. Um, He works a lot with our, what we call the Madison Multiply Network, which is partnership here in the Madison area of like-minded churches where we're seeking to encourage and empower one another uh, to continue to minister the gospel in all corners of the city here. And so it's exciting to have him here. It's important to us as elders to have Casey here um, as well, um, that you know um, some of our partner sister churches here in town. Uh, We love them, and we're excited to have Casey here today. So I'll invite Linda up. She's going to read the scripture this morning. It's from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. You can grab your Bibles as she's coming up. Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this was who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. 
And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. All right, we had some lavalier problems in the first service. I'm going to go all handheld for the second service. So don't be surprised if I do a little rapping or at least beatbox while I have this, because I think that was the last time I held a microphone in my hand like this. So uh, we might have some fun here this morning. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer City Church. It seems like it was a blink of an eye ago that I was part of the Vine Church before we launched off and planted Redeemer City. And like David said, it's, we just had our five-year anniversary and celebrated that. So... God is good, and being that uh, we've planted Eastside Church now, uh, Nate or I are going to try to come and give Zach a little break, maybe once every eight weeks or so, just because of losing some of the preachers with planting the uh, Eastside Church. So hopefully we'll get to see you guys a little bit more. I want you to picture two people in your mind. Um, first, I want you to think of somebody who you despise, who is is so... Uh, evil or so wicked that if one day you get to heaven and you see them there, that you would be upset. And then the other person, I want you to think of somebody that is so good, like follows all the rules, and if God would let anyone into heaven for just being a good person, like this person is a shoe-in. I think one of the interesting things when you read through the Gospels is that it appears as if Jesus would rather hang out with the former than the latter. That's kind of a striking thing, that Jesus would rather hang out with those at the edges and the misfits and the tax collectors and sinners than those who were respected as morally good in the society of that day. So why do you think that is? I would say it's because grace is a funny thing. To the one who receives grace, there is no limit. There's no one who can out God, that their sin would be so deep that God's grace can't cover that. And to the one who is too good, there's not one who's too good in order to not receive, to need God's grace. This morning we see two characters are each on uh, one side of the spectrum. You have a Pharisee who is respected by the culture around him, who is known for being good and following all the rules. And then on the, the other side of the spectrum, you have a prostitute who was one of the most lowly and despised people of the culture of, of that day. And both of these people have an interaction with Jesus around a meal. Let me set the scene for us because meals in Jesus' culture are a little different than we might experience today. So the, the Pharisee threw a dinner party, and when you did this, you would usually in, invite your closest friends, and this would be other Pharisees, or this would be other uh, leaders within the community, or just people that were, like, just known, like they were uh, like the celebrities of the culture of that day. And uh, he would invite them in, into their home. And then often people who were kind of nobodies in the culture would come to be able to listen. They weren't invited guests, but they could just kind of look in through the windows or, or the doorways and just kind of listen. If they could see, they would watch what would happen because they were curious on when high society got together, like what they actually talked about and discussed. So there'd always be a, a crowd around this. I, when I picture this, I picture kind of like a talk show today, right, where you get the celebrities that are invited in, and then you get us nobodies that would actually come and sit and listen to it, because we want to hear, well, what are the celebrities going to say? Like, what's, what's important? What's going on here? 
So it's like this talk show thing, except for it took place around a meal. And Jesus is the invited guest. At these banquets, they didn't sit around tables like we do today. They would lie down uh, with their feet pointing away from the table, uh, probably propped up on one elbow so they could use the other arm to be able to feed themselves. I would demonstrate that for you, but I'm holding a microphone, so if you're listening on, never mind. Let's just keep going. <laughs> no improvisation today. Um, and then the, the table would be open on, on one side so that the servers could actually come in and serve those sitting at the table. And if you see the paintings of the, the Lord's Supper, it's kind of like TV, right, where they, they always shoot people where nobody sits on one side of the table so you don't see the back of their heads. And you think, oh, they're just doing that and painting it that way so they can see their faces. But this is actually the way they, they ate so that they could be served a whole side of the table. They could bring out course after course and wine after wine um, on one side of an open table. So this is the scene, but our two characters in the story, they respond to Jesus in two completely and very different ways. Let's start with the prostitute and how she responds to Jesus. Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So who is this woman? First, the, the text tells us that it is a woman of the city, which means, um, um, in, oh, I'm sorry, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Now, it might sound strange to have the Bible call somebody a sinner, because when you read all of the Bible, we realize that everybody's a sinner, right? Um, there is no one who does good, not one. And so you come across this, like, well, why, why is the Bible calling us, her a sinner? And, and the meaning here is that she was known for her sin. Like, when she walked into a room, people would just look and go, oh, yeah, there's that sinner, you know, we might be identified as, hey, there's that guy who works for Epic, or there's that mom with seven kids, or, or whatever it is. But she was known as a sinner. That was her scarlet letter. That was her identity in the culture of that day. And can you imagine that? Can you imagine that, like, knowing that we are all sinners, that, that they would pick out one person and go, oh, there's the sinner, that that was her identity. But that's actually um, what, how she was regarded in the culture of that day. And the specific sin she was known for was being a woman of the city, which means that she was either an adulterer or a prostitute. And um, I think the text uh, highlights that she was a prostitute, so that's the way I'm going to refer to her from here on out. Uh, but regardless of, of how she was known for a sexual sin, what is clear is her reputation is that of a despised sinner, and she was an uninvited guest to this party. A woman like this was not invited to a party like this. In fact, women in that culture were not invited to recline around table at all. It was only men that were invited to participate in this. So when she steps in around this table, it, it's, it's a little bit disruptive. Um, it's startling. I kind of picture it as um, like at the, was it the Grammys where Kanye West grabs the microphone from Taylor Swift and just snags it and says, excuse me, Pharisee, I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. I mean, that's how disruptive this is. It's shocking. It's something that should not be taking place. 
Um, but even more than the interruption being startling, it's, it's shocking. The prostitute approaches where Jesus reclines at table. She kneels down and weeps at his feet. And then she lets down her hair and wipes his feet with her hair, kisses his feet, anoints them with oil. This might look like a sweet scene to us when we read this and like, oh, this is just, this is cute. But this was disturbing. It was inappropriate for that culture. See, women in that culture, much like many women in the Middle East today, they they kept their hair up, and when they let it down, it was only in the presence of their husband and only in the bedroom. Otherwise, it was, it was always up, and it was always covered. So for a woman to walk into a scene like this in public where everyone is watching and let down her hair, it, I would give you some cultural references what that would be like in our culture, but that would be inappropriate as well. It is completely inappropriate what is taking place. And what you see here, if you were sitting around the table and watching this takes, take place, you would think, okay, so Jesus has an inappropriate relationship with this woman as well, because look at how intimate they're being together. Um, perhaps they've been intimate before, or perhaps he's even a client. This doesn't look good for Jesus. So now knowing that she's not invited... Knowing her reputation, knowing who the host of the party was, what would make a woman like this crash this kind of party? Verse 37 tells us, because she heard Jesus was there. And it's it's rather unfortunate that we don't know who this woman is. There's a lot of speculation that's taken place. There's some people believe it's Mary Magdalene or other people from Scripture. But the fact is, Luke left her nameless for a reason. Uh, we, we don't know her past or her history or what happened before this actual event took place. But I think one thing that can be certain is that at some point or another, she had met Jesus, and she discovered the depth of her own sin, and she discovered the heights of God's grace. I mean, what else would to lead a woman like this to barge into a party and just fall in and weep at Jesus' feet and do these kind of acts that she's actually doing? So... She understands this about Jesus, crashes the party. Something deeply impactful is happening within her heart as she responds to Jesus. Now, two things I want us to take from this interaction. One, if she was known for her sexual sin, then she was someone who looked to men for a certain kind of uh, approval or significance and would have been concerned with her appearance. Um, And this is what I love about this scene right here because... It says she weeps in public. I think oftentimes when I used to read this story, I would think, oh, this is just um, so endearing. Like these, she's got these pretty little girls sitting at Jesus' feet, and these tears are just dropping down from her eyes. But that's not what's taking place. She is weeping. Have you ever wept before? If you're shaking your head, no. Shame on you. Of course, we've all wept before. What happens when we weep? Like our face does strange things. We, it's an ugly cry, right? We can't control it. And we know she's doing an ugly cry right here because she is crying enough that she's wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, enough that she's washing his feet with her tears. She is no longer concerned about her appearance, especially in front of men. And why? Because she has found something else that has taken her affection. 
what she used to value, she doesn't value in the same kind of way because she has given her affections to Jesus. And the second thing, this alabaster jar of ointment she pours out is worth more than a year's wages. Think about this for a second. A woman working in that culture, obviously, if you want to complain about women's wages today, back then, a lot worse, right? So she's pouring out a year's worth of, of men's wages, is what this text is saying. Which means that if, if she was a prostitute, this is like her profits for who knows how long. And, she, and she's just pouring them out on Jesus' feet, anointing his feet with this oil. And this, this is actually just really significant. It's saying, I, I don't care what I used to do. I don't, think, I don't care what I used to value. What's happening right now, what, what, what I'm displaying is that this is what matters. What we see here is this woman is repenting in front of Jesus and in front of this entire room of people, in front of this crowd that's lining up on the outside. She is showing repentance in this moment. I don't know what it looked like for you when you encountered Jesus and saw the depths of your own sin um, and the depths of God's grace for you. Uh, maybe it was a moment like this where it was a light switch and all of a sudden everything radically changed within your life and your desires and what you sought for significance no longer had, had value, right? It, you just turned away from them to be able to follow Jesus. Maybe that was, that's what it was like for you. Uh, usually people that have a very sinful past, this is what happens. It's like, man, I've been going down the, 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 the wrong road for way too long. And they just surrender their lives. And, and if you've had a story like that, maybe you are have a similar story where you've just fallen at Jesus' feet and wept at his feet and made this commitment that, that I'm going to follow you all the days of my life. And that's what's happening to this woman in the story. She's had a radical shift in her heart, and she's responding to Jesus' radical grace. So that's the first character in the story. Second character, pretty much just like her, right? While the prostitute is at the, the bottom of the moral totem pole, the Pharisee is at the top. These people were known for the religiosity. They were known for the rule-keeping. They kept the moral law to a T. In fact, they kept the law so well that they made up all of these other rules to keep themselves from getting too close to God's law that they didn't want to break. I mean, these guys, you, they were looked up to as, as keeping the law and respected in the culture for doing that. But you know how our culture sometimes complains about how judgmental Christians are? This is his problem. As much as he was looked up to for his own like moral behavior, he was even more judgmental. And what we see here is, is the Pharisee judges three people at the table. He judges the woman, he judges Jesus, and he judges himself. Or I really should say he misjudges all three of those people. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Have you ever seen the PBS series, uh, Downton Abbey? Uh, it's a show that is about these rich people who live in this ginormous mansion, right? And the show is really about these, these respected uh, elite people, and then the servants that just serve them in this giant mansion and all live in these quarters on in the mansion. But there's this interesting scene in one episode where a prostitute comes in, and all of the servants refuse to serve this prostitute because that's 
where she falls on that moral spectrum, far below even the servants. So they were like, no, 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 we're, we're not, we're not going to serve this prostitute. And what we have in this scene is you have a Pharisee who is like the cultural elite looking down at the one who is, is the morally low, the most despised. Like there's a, there's a great chasm on the scale that they have built to, to show the classes in here. And, and he, he's looking down at this woman because all he can see, all this Pharisee sees is her sin. He sees nothing else. He doesn't see this repentance. He, he doesn't see what these tears meant or the washing of the feet or letting down the hair and, and, and kissing the feet. He doesn't see any of it. All he's concerned about is that she is a sinner and she doesn't belong here. The Pharisee judges the woman. Then the Pharisee judges Jesus. And he thinks, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and that she is a sinner. You know, Jesus was known as a, a teacher, and many were regarding him as, as a prophet. And what he see, sees here is he says, well, obviously, Jesus isn't a prophet. He, he isn't what we all thought he might be, because if he were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, and, and nobody would let a sinner like this touch him, because she's unclean. Now, Jesus is going to be unclean, because this filthy woman is touching Jesus' feet. Now, if you were a teacher of the law, which is what the Pharisees did, and your job was to teach the law and hope that people would obey, wouldn't you celebrate if you saw someone who was known as a lawbreaker come in and display something that looks like it might actually be repentance? There should be celebration in this moment, but instead, it's just disgust. It's just him being even more self-righteous than he was before because he's comparing himself even more to the, the, this woman. And then he judges Jesus. Jesus is not who we thought he was. If you read the rest of Luke up to this point, you will see that the Pharisees spent a lot of energy trying to determine who Jesus is. Um, you know, many of them wanted to disregard him. They tried to trap him in conversations. But they were really curious on who this guy was. And there's a story that happens right before this that the question is asked, is Jesus a friend of sinners? This was probably the motivation for him bringing Jesus into his home. He wanted to find out is Jesus truly a friend of sinners? So when you read through all of these stories and you see Jesus' interaction, that he's always hanging out with the misfits, the tax collectors, those known as sinners. You look at who he has meals with, and then you see the prostitute come in and clean his feet. What is the verdict? I mean, it should be clear, right? Is Jesus a friend of sinners? Yes. Jesus is showing over and over again that, yes, I am a friend of sinners, which for a sinner like this prostitute who is before Jesus at his feet, I mean, this is amazing news. But for other people around that are trying so hard to be morally good, this is not good news. This is the worst news. Let's just disregard Jesus even more because certainly we can't hang around with a man who is friends with sinners. And then finally, the Pharisee judges himself. The Pharisee sees himself as the true prophet and the only one who can really see what's happening. He sees that, oh, obviously this woman is, is a sinner. And then, oh, Jesus isn't a real prophet. And I'm the only one who can see clearly because I am morally better than the prostitute. And apparently I'm wiser than Jesus is as well. So he uses this whole scene to elevate himself even more. The Pharisee misjudges himself. But his inability to see clearly isn't even the Pharisee's biggest problem. His biggest problem is what's causing him to not see clearly in the first place, and that's because he's, he's self-righteous. 
The Pharisee's biggest problem is he is self-righteous, and it is making himself blind. The Pharisees were known for following all the rules, but they would display and demonstrate all of the rules they were following that were on the outside. Like, who cares what's actually going on in the heart? Because nobody's going to know that. So let me just go and display these things. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs because they would just clean the outside. On the inside, they were like dead, rotting things. They loved to perform on the outside because they were, they were self-righteous. And if you read the New Testament, you will find that the inside is what's actually most important to God. God is most concerned with our hearts. So while the Pharisees might be known for following outward rules like Sabbath-keeping, giving, praying, etc., they were the most self-righteous people on the planet. Here's what self-righteousness does to us. It puts us on a pedestal where we look down on others. And I realize this is awkward coming from a guy who's speaking on stage right now where I'm sort of looking down on you. Let me stand down here a little bit. We put ourselves on an imaginary pedestal like where we can look down and feel elevated and above other people. So we just look down our nose at other people and thinking, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm, I'm okay. It keeps us from seeing the seriousness of our own sin because we're too worried about judging other people and pointing out the sin in their lives so that we can make our pedestal even a little bit higher. And I know it's easy to pick on the Pharisee here, but aren't we all in danger of being a little self-righteous? Isn't this a, a sin that is just tempting for all of us to just compare ourselves to other people so that we feel better, that we, that we might feel good enough? I know I do. And here's, here's the problem. If we are on a moral totem pole and we think that we're like the morally elite, we're going to look down on everybody. If we're kind of in the middle of the road and we think we're doing okay, we're going to find somebody else who's doing worse than that because that's the only way that we're going to feel good about ourselves. So we'll look at, well, you know what? I might not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that prostitute. And if you are that prostitute, you're going to pick out somebody else. You're going to say, well, I might be a prostitute, but at least I'm not like that serial killer. And if you're like that serial killer, you say, well, at least I'm not like Hitler. And if you're Hitler, you got no other place to go. You're, you're done. You're at, the, you're at the low. But we do this. We think of, of this totem pole and we're like, how can I point out sin in other people's lives so that I can be a little bit higher? Do you see the problem with this? I'm going to go out on a limb here, but if you have to compare yourself to Hitler to justify your own goodness, you're not a good person. I think that's safe to say, right? Even if you have to compare yourself to a serial killer to justify your own goodness, you're not a good person. And guess what? None of us are good people. That's really harsh to say, and if you're new to Christianity, you're probably going to be shocked by that. That's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. What he does is he takes this, this whole moral totem pole that we have developed within our society, and he says, guess what? It's all below God's standards. There's no one who's good. There's no one who's righteous. Not even one. The best we can do is just a little bit better than everybody else. It's kind of like the, the kids that go wait in line for the roller coaster at the amusement park, and then there's one kid who's three inches too short, and his buddies are laughing at him, and they're two inches too short, right? It's like we, we don't make it. We're not riding the roller coaster because 
we've, we've created this, this moral spectrum that still falls behind and beneath God's standards of goodness. And that's, that's kind of depressing, right? If we look at that and go, man, thanks, Pastor. Thanks for depressing me this morning. But there's good news in that. Because God knows we're not good enough, so he did something about it. And what did he do? He sent his son, Jesus, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died for our sins so that we can take on his righteousness. He died the death we deserve because we are not morally good enough. There's no way we can save ourselves, and that's the whole reason Jesus had to come in the first place. And praise God, that's good news. So I think the thing we need to do is understand, like, Okay, I can't do this on my own. I can't be good enough. There, there's no way I can be, if I do be better than a Pharisee that I'm in, no. There, there's, there's no way. That's why we, we need Jesus, and that's why Jesus came to save the prostitute in the Pharisee, to save sinners like you and, and sinners like me. That's why Jesus came in the first place, and that's good news. But the problem with the Pharisee is he can see the prostitute's sin, but he can't see his own sin. He can't see his own sin. And it might look like he doesn't like the, the prostitutes there, but I bet you he loves it because it's able to raise his pedestal that he's made, this imaginary pedestal, so he can look down his nose even more. And now that Jesus is here, he judges Jesus that he's not a prophet, so his pedestal just got a little bit higher. I don't want you to miss this. Um, I think I'm often quick to write off the religious and, and the, the people who are self-righteous. Like I, I've had, I grew up, I had a crazy past. Like I, I have a record. Um, I invited a couple guys to come this morning um, that have a similar past. They didn't come, but that's okay. Maybe they'll come another time. Um, so I, I love reaching out to people who are on the margins. I, I love to see people that think they're, they're such big sinners that there's no way they could possibly be forgiven because of the depth of their sin. I love doing that. I don't like hanging out with religious, self-righteous people. I really, I really don't like it. I, 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 would, I, don't, I feel like I'm wasting my time. But I think what's important to see here is that Jesus didn't come for just the prostitute that's at his feet. Jesus came... For the Pharisee as well, he came for the religious, self-righteous. And what you see Jesus doing here is that, that he is trying to get the Pharisee to see his own sin so that he understands his need for God's grace. Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. I think we often miss that when we read this story. It's like, oh yeah, Jesus is going for, for the prostitute. No, he's going for both of these people. He's going for that whole crowd in the room. He's going for everybody outside the windows, everybody around that table. He is going for all of these. And, and listen... Jesus goes after the Pharisee by knocking his pedestal out from underneath him. That's how he's going after the Pharisee. He knocks his pedestal underneath him, and he does this by comparing the Pharisee to the prostitute. Now, if Jesus would have walked into this dinner and just said, hey, Pharisee, this is what I'm going to do. There's going to be a prostitute that's going to come in a little bit. You all know her. What I'm going to do is I'm going to compare you to her. He would have been all puffed up, right? It's like, oh, yeah, this dinner is going to go good for me. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go good for him. You just heard the scripture read. The Pharisee was supposed to be the host, and if you were a good host, you would make sure your guests' feet were clean. That's what you did, because people traveled, they had open sandals, dusty roads, they didn't have sidewalks where we power washed and they were clean, it was dusty, they had gnarly feet, and you would, 
wash your guests' feet before they came in, especially if this was a banquet like reclining around the table. That's what a Pharisee was supposed to do. He didn't do it, right? Now, if you were a respected guest, you would meet your respected guest with a kiss. Pharisee didn't do that. If you were an honored guest, you would anoint their head with oil. Pharisee doesn't do that. But who does that in the story? Who does all three of these things? It's the prostitute, the one who is being disregarded, who is the true host in the story, who, who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, who kissed his feet, who anointed them with oil. The prostitute is the true host in the story. And when you compare the Pharisee with the prostitute, the, the Pharisee loses. He's not doing what he should be doing and where he thinks he's morally good and, and setting himself on the spectrum. Jesus just knocked his pedestal right out from underneath him. But Jesus continues to pursue him. Did you notice that this, this whole passage, that this guy is called just a Pharisee? Until he judges incorrectly. And then Jesus calls him by name. He says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say to you. Jesus wants to make sure that Simon doesn't miss what's coming next. He gets his attention. Yeah, he's just a Pharisee through, bless you, just a Pharisee through this whole passage. And then he addresses it by name. He's trying to get, make that connection. Simon, I have something to say to you. And then how does he really get his attention? It's by body language. I think this is so important. If you read through the Gospels, are you guys in Matthew right now? Look at how the authors describe body language, because I think this is really important, and you could really miss this if you just read right through. I think I read through this maybe a hundred times before I actually discovered this. And um, So there's this, this scene, and Luke is giving us so much detail because he doesn't want us to miss this, where it says that he, uh, verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? This is super important because you're having a conversation with somebody. If I say, yeah, look at that plant over there. I turn back to you and we continue our conversation. If I do that, you're going to glance over at that plant and then you're going to look right back at me and we're going to talk. But by turning away, he's like, look at this woman. And then he continues having a conversation with Simon, but he, he looks at the woman. And what that's going to do is that's going to direct the Pharisee's eyes at the woman. He wants, he wants him to see. He wants him to connect. And, and seeing is so important. You know you can't have compassion without seeing? Have you ever noticed like when if somebody's asking for money on the side of the road, you all of a sudden think, i got to fiddle with my radio or do something because if I make eye contact, I might actually connect and have to give compassion to this person. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, look at this. I want you to see this woman. And not only see her, I want you to see this repentance. I want you to see this changed heart that she's displaying in front of you in this entire room. He's trying to get him to connect with the prostitute through body language. There's a lot that can change about your perspective of another if you truly see them. Then Jesus concludes his conversation with Simon with a parable. In verse 41, he says, A certain moneylender who had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they came to pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which one of them will love them more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. This parable that Jesus uses here really helps us to see God's grace in a much clearer way. Like, let's say um, you got your, your iPhone with Verizon, and you have one payment left of $45, and that phone is paid off. And Verizon says, 
you know what, we're going to give you some grace on this. No payment. Be like, hey, that's pretty cool. You might even enjoy it enough that you tell somebody about it. Hey, Verizon just gave me 45 bucks. Pretty cool story, right? But let's just pretend like uh, you got your home mortgage with UW Credit Union, and they call you and said, you know what, we're, we're going to forgive your whole debt. Quarter million dollars on us. You're, you're probably going to have a good day, right? You're probably going to tell a few people about that because something amazing just happened to you. A quarter million it was just put in your pocket. And Jesus uses this example for two reasons. First of all, he's, he's bringing dignity to the woman. This is super important not to miss. He's bringing dignity to this woman who is despised in this room. While he's trying to get Simon to see the motivation behind her display of affection. Jesus wants Simon to stop looking at the woman's outside and start seeing what's actually taking place in the woman on the inside. And then second, Jesus wants Simon to stop viewing himself on the outside and start viewing himself from what's on the inside. Jesus wants Simon to see the depths of his own sin. See, Simon thinks he has a very small debt to pay. In fact, so small that he's living like he's already paid it off. Simon's living like, yeah, you know, I've only done a few things bad, but my goodness is just made up for that. I have no debt, debt-free. What Jesus is saying here is not that since you have such a small debt, you don't understand grace. Jesus is telling Simon that he doesn't understand grace because he doesn't know how great his debt actually is. Simon doesn't understand how great his debt is. And understanding how great our debt is helps us to see how amazing God's grace is. The late Jack Miller, who was a Presbyterian preacher, um, he founded World, uh, World Harvest Mission uh, that is called Surge now, I believe. Um, but he was known for his work on sonship and grace. And Jack once said, this is one of my all-time favorite quotes. He said, cheer up. You're a worse sinner than you ever dared imagine. And you're more loved than you ever dared hope. I think that's so important. Not only to see God's grace, but to truly understand what a gift God's grace is. We have to understand how deep a rabbit hole of sin goes. It is so much deeper than we think it is. But cheer up, God's grace is way deeper than our sin goes. He's trying to get the Pharisee to see this. Who do you think you're more like in the story? Are, are you more like the, the Pharisee who thinks that you've only got a little bit of sin, a little bit of things you've done wrong, and don't really need grace because you're doing pretty good on your own? You're good enough. You're going to get in. If that's you, I hope that you see your need for grace and forgiveness. That's only going to be happened by you seeing how deep your sin goes. Or maybe you're, you're more like the prostitute who understood the depth of her own sin, understood that she has a major need for grace, and, and the response to that of understanding how deep her sin is and how great uh, God's grace is, that she falls at Jesus' feet and just cries out and anoints his feet with oil. Maybe you can relate more to the prostitute in this story. 
But the good news, if that's you, if you're feeling that way, that you have such a deep sin, that, that forgiveness is available. That you can be forgiven. Or like we, we sang earlier, washed my sins away. Because that's what we can have in Jesus. There's no one who can sin too much to outrun God's grace. Seeing Jesus more clearly helps us see ourselves more clearly, which helps us see grace more clearly, which helps us to see others more clearly. It helps us become more like Jesus. I started with a question. Why do you think Jesus hung out and ate with sinners? And I think he did this because he wanted us to see what a life would look like with a changed heart. Jesus wanted to display and for us to see what living with a changed heart would be like, that, that God's grace could radically change the inside, which would radically change what happens on the outside. Because when we understand the depths of God's grace, we, we can't look down our noses at other people because we, we realize that we're in the same boat. There's no longer anybody who is too far off of that spectrum in order to be, not be able to see, receive God's grace. It helps us to get on the same level and see people eye to eye. And you know what else it does? When we understand, like, people who are out there that, that feel like they're the chief of sinners and can't receive God's grace, we are the agents of God's grace. We are the agents of it. We have the ones, we're the ones who experience that forgiveness. We're the ones who know God's grace, so we are that agent to be able to go out to those on the fringes and think they're too big of a sinner and say, guess what? There's hope for you. There's good news because God has given us much grace in Jesus Christ. May we be churches that live this out. Let's pray. God, we, we come before you and we acknowledge, um, I hope we all acknowledge, that we have great sin in our lives. Even if we have already received forgiveness and we follow you, I confess that, that I can continue to sin. I love that we do confession every single week, and we don't do it to, to glorify sin, but we do it to glorify grace because your grace is bigger than our sin, and we praise you for that today. God, thank you for all you've done. Jesus, thank you for being, being faithful even to the cross. May we understand how amazing your grace is. And may that change not only the inside but the outside. Help us to live out in reflection of your grace to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.